welcome to the Family Tree Magazine Podcast, the show from America's number one genealogy magazine. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. Our theme for this June 2016 episode is Maximizing Military Records. We'll start over at the Genealogy Insider blog, where managing editor Diane Haddad will give us the scoop on 12 free websites to search for fallen military ancestors. And then we'll jump right into our top tip segment to discuss military memorabilia preservation with author Denise Levenick. Then in our 101 Best Website segment, David Frixell will be back to give us a sneak peek at the military websites featured in the upcoming 2016 Best Websites list. And in the Family Tree University Crash Course segment, Nancy Hendrickson will be here to talk about how to find your ancestors' military records. And then we will wrap things up at the publisher's desk with Allison Dolan, who has a terrific resource for us to map out our military ancestors' movements. There's a lot to cover, so let's get to it. Our first stop is the blogosphere with Diane Haddad. We're going to kick off this episode with news from the genealogy blogosphere, and here to do that is genealogy insider Diane Haddad. Hi, Diane. Hi, Lisa. You know, Diane, our theme for this episode is maximizing military records. So, of course, I gravitated immediately to your recent blog post. It's called 12 Free Websites to Search for and Honor Fallen Military Ancestors on Memorial Day. And, of course, it's not just Memorial Day that we are researching our fallen military ancestors. So I'd love to have you share some of those free websites with us. Sure. Um, One of the best websites to search for both military ancestors who um, served in wars and then passed on in their later years and those who died during service is the Nationwide Gravesite Locator. And that's a free site run by the Department of Veterans Affairs. And it catalogs burials in their official Veterans Affairs cemeteries as well as state veterans cemeteries. And then also um, a private cemetery if the family of the deceased person requested a government-issued headstone for requests after 1997. Wow. Okay. So that's the Nationwide Gravesite Locator Database. And this and all the ones you're mentioning are free, correct? Yes. Yes. That is a free site. Individual cemeteries will often have similar databases, such as the Arlington National Cemetery, and you can actually use that website to find the specific location of the grave site, making it a lot easier to go visit and pay your respects. Um, The American Battle Monuments Commission database is another website, and that names service members mostly in World War I and II who died and are either buried or memorialized overseas. So um, a lot of cemeteries in Europe and some in Southeast Asia. Wow. Okay, so that's the American Battle Monuments Commission database. And you mentioned the Arlington National Cemetery, and they have an app as well, don't they? A mobile app? They do. It's called the ANC Explorer. You can download it to your um, your mobile device. So oh, wow. So take it with okay. you to the cemetery and help you find your way. Um There are Fold3 is a subscription site, but it has free virtual memorials to both the Vietnam Wall and the USS Arizona Memorial. And that's kind of neat because these are very 
huge detailed photographs that are kind of stitched together. So you can actually zoom in on a picture of the name of the person you're looking for on that wall. So it's a very touching way to memorialize those people. And I know that the National Archives has a website, and you mentioned on your blog post that there's a casualties database, and that's more recent wars, isn't it? Right, Korea and Vietnam wars. And this database will name casualties in addition to fatalities. And you can also search it on the free family search site. And that search on family search is actually a little bit easier to use. So I'd recommend going there first. Okay, perfect. And and you also here mention more about family search. What are the types of databases do they have? And of course, that's all free. Yes. And they have a few different databases that will cover military deaths. Uh, records of headstones of deceased Union veterans is one, and then Navy widow certificates from 1861 to 1910 is another one. And to find these, you can go to Family Search, and then um, you can do search records, and then from there, there's a link to list all the databases, and you can use filters to narrow it down to United States and to military-related databases. And then, of course, when you're looking at cemeteries, you should always try Find a Grave, Billion Graves, and Interment.net, because those will name people and volunteer-submitted transcriptions of headstones in you know, a variety of cemeteries across the country and the, around the world. Perfect. Wow. A lot of great resources already. And there are more, again, uh, listed in this terrific blog post. It's called 12 Free Websites to Search for and Honor Fallen Military Ancestors. And that was back on May 24th of 2016. But of course, we're going to have a link to it so you can go straight there anytime or any day. Diane, great resources. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. You're welcome. top tips segment, I've invited the family curator, Denise Levenick, back to the show to talk about how to preserve military memorabilia. Welcome back, Denise. Hi, Lisa. So nice to talk with you. Well, Denise, what kind of military memorabilia might we find in our own families or even in our own homes? Well, people seem to inherit all kinds of things from the past soldiers in their families. You know, you, you might have a medal or you might have a flag from someone's funeral. You might even have inherited uh, a uniform, all different kinds of things. Exactly. And I imagine, of course, just thinking about what the materials are involved in each one of those, they're probably very different. Now, I know in our family, we inherited my father-in-law's casket flag, but we were fortunate that came to us already you know, folded and preserved in kind of like a triangular shadow box case. If you were just to receive the the cloth flag and you have to start from there, what do you recommend? I know you just wrote an article about this, right? I did. This is a a new uh, column for Family Tree Magazine in the Family Archivist column. Um, And someone did. They wrote and said, what do I do with this? I think it's a casket flag. Casket flags are very large because they have to cover an entire, you know, large casket. And so it's really not suitable to display those. Most people don't have a heavy enough standard or pole to display that kind of a flag. So most people do fold it in the triangular fashion, you know, where the stars show at the end when it's Mm -hmm. all folded. And there's a couple different ways you can store that and display that flag. 
The archival suppliers, like Gaylord, they make an acid-free box, which is, of course, out of a board material. So your flag would be inside and it would be dark, protected from the light. If you want to display it so people can see that, there are also boxes that are triangular in shape, and the front is a UV plexiglass or glass, and then you can see the flag inside the triangular box. Exactly. And I love that because I love being able to look up on the, the shelf and, and see that and have his photograph next to it in a frame. Yeah. So what do you think? I know some people like to do collages and shadow boxes of kind of mixed things. Is that safe to do or should we not be doing that with a flag? Well, that's a that's a really good question because people do. It, uh, the flag is so beautiful. People like to use it in a mixed media kind of thing. And it's really improper, according to flag etiquette, to pin or put anything on top of the flag. If you want to do a collage or display the medals or a photograph, it's best to do that perhaps in a shadow box and display it next to the flag, not on top of the flag itself. And that's probably a a really unique aspect of preservation when it comes to military items. You not only have the mechanics of doing it properly so that they don't become damaged, but you really do have etiquette, like you say, things that so we make sure we're honoring these items as well. Right, right. Now, I know the other thing in my closet that did not come to me preserved were uniforms. I have my father-in-laws and my husband's and my uncle's. What do you do with a military uniform? Is there, I, you know, I can't bear to let them go. So. I know. I know. My father-in-law um, was a West Point cadet oh, mm. years ago. And so we have, we inherited a lot of his uniforms. And I have my great, my grandfather's World War I uniform. Oh, wonderful. So, but what do we do with them? Um, yeah. Well, the first rule of putting away any textile is to put it away clean. Mm-hmm. Bugs and little critters really like to get into cloth, especially wool and cotton. If there's any kind of lingering body oils or anything, you know, dirt. So you want to clean it. If it's very old, of course, you probably don't want to do dry cleaning, maybe just a vacuuming. Mm-hmm. Good idea. And avoid a dry cleaner, plastic bags. Those are really not good for your garment. If you want to hang them, because military uniforms are quite heavy, you can get a, a sturdy wooden hanger and wrap it with polyester batting, you know, like you'd use for quilting, to, right. to make it a really padded hanger. And then put your garment on top of that padded hanger, and you can stuff the sleeves with acid-free tissue paper, and then put the entire um, uniform, you probably have the jacket more than maybe the pants are or left, I don't know if you have the pants uh-huh. too, and put it inside a garment bag that's made specifically for preserving clothing. And they're often made out of kind of a Tyvek material, you know, that kind of a, a papery cloth almost. I don't know what to call it. But you can ask at like a dry cleaners that will preserve wedding gowns for that kind of thing. Or you could oh, store right. the uniform flat in an archival acid-free box with, again, the tissue paper in the sleeves, and to cushion any folds or creases. 
Yeah, you notice as you open up something that's been folded for a long time, it actually wears it out. It's amazing, even though you're not wrestling it around, just the folding. It does, it does. And and if you do fold it, you'll want to take it out every few months and refold it in a different way. So it's really better to put tissue paper in there and just kind of create a sausage, like where the where the arms are. Great idea. Yeah. So it's it's really about not introducing foreign chemicals or things that could harm them. And I imagine light must be one of the biggest culprits. Right. Light and air or being right on top of wood. Mm. If you have it in a, in a drawer or something, if you put a, a uniform or a garment in, in a drawer, you'd want to have that drawer sealed with polyurethane because the acid in the wood would be really bad for the fabrics. So you want to keep it away from anything like light too much, you know, just the environment, smoke, heat, especially heat, and humidity. So those are some things to watch out for. Oh, and I have to do double duty now that I live in Texas. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we have the heat and we have some humidity. Yeah. Well, great suggestions. And I know that you have written books on preservation, not just military items, but all kinds of items. Tell us the books that you have currently out? Well, I have two books. Um, How to Archive Family Keepsakes really does encompass all, all different kinds of family heirlooms, including military medals and uh, uniforms, flags. And Chapter 8 talks about different artifacts and how you preserve them. And then my new book, How to Archive Family Photos, really focuses on the photographs that we inherit and want to scan, as well as the digital photos that we're taking nowadays with our digital cameras. Oh, wonderful. And it's a great book. And I know I've used many of your suggestions in framing and kind of, since I'm not necessarily mixing things together in the same box, but, you know, creating kind of a little vignette mm-hmm. in a corner of the home, but the pictures are over here, they're preserved correctly, and the other more physical items next to them, but also preserved in their own special way. Everything is unique in its own way. Thank you so much, Denise. Wonderful ideas. And I'll have links to Gaylord, she mentioned, as one of the resources and some those other tips that you provided with us. Thanks so much, Denise. Hey, you're welcome. Nice talking with you, Lisa. In our 101 Best Websites list segment, we're going to get a sneak peek at the military websites that are going to be included on the upcoming 2016 list. And we'll do that with the author, David Frixell. Hi, David. Hello. Great to be back. Oh, good to have you back, and I'm so glad you're giving us – you never do this. You never give us kind of a, a preview, but we are talking military records this time around, and this list you've compiled is really great. So thank you for sharing the list a little early. Well, usually we have – fairly often, at least, we have a whole category in 101 where we just look at military records. But this year, you know, you know we always like to do things a little bit differently, and this year's list, as readers will see in a little while – um, has a lot of new sites in it. So we've really, uh, you know, mixed things up to make it a little bit different. But we still have a bunch of sites of uh, interest for military research. They're just scattered through in some slightly different categories. So it's a little bit, it's a little bit different this year. Yeah. Well, and what I like about the, the group that you have to share with us is that uh, they really represent that it's not just specifically records, but there's a whole story to be uncovered, and there's a lot of different places you can do that. So start us off. Where's a great place to start to do military research? Well, I guess we could sort of work in a way kind of backwards and think about 
there are two sites where if you have a veteran who is buried either in the U.S. or abroad in a military cemetery or with some sort of veteran's connotation where you can find it. And it's remarkably easy. The American Battle Monuments Commission site has 218,000 American military who are buried or memorialized overseas. So those are your overseas people. And then the stateside version, if you will, is the nationwide gravesite locator. And uh, it's sort of the, the counterpart. And it's updated daily, and it searches burial locations of veterans and their family members in VA national cemeteries state cemeteries and more. And these are really great sites. We actually just got back uh, a few months ago from a trip to France where we visited the Normandy battlefields and it was you know, terribly impressive. And we had you know, wanted to then check on some of the graves that we had seen. And I was immediately able with this website, the American Battle Monuments one, to find the details of the burial of the people whose graves we had actually seen there. And you could do it in reverse whether it was someone in my wife's family, we were curious about whether he was buried there, and we were able to look and, and find out that, in fact, he was not. So that saved us a lot of time traipsing through the battlefield. Oh, right, and trying to find them. So the American Battle Monuments Commission, that's abmc.gov, and then the other one was the Nationwide Gravesite Locator, so that's gravelocator.cem.va.gov. Right. So, And we're, we're going to have links to all these in the show notes. Great suggestions. Okay, how about if we have Civil War ancestors? Well, really, the place to you know to go to is, remains the Civil War Soldiers and Sailors System, which is at the National Park Service site, and it's it's really still the place to start. It's got 6.3 million mostly soldiers, Union and Confederate from 44 states and territories. So you can go in there and sort of answer the question right away. You know, do I have a Civil War? ancestor. And it'll give you the um, basic information about service and the unit and the state. And you don't have to know all that in order to find your Civil War veteran. So you go there and then a really good site for Civil War as well as pretty much all military is Fold3. It's just Fold3.com, which has 473 million records. It's probably more than that now. And that's a subscription site. That's the, the first thing we talked about there where you have to pay. It's about 80 bucks a year. And it's really good with U.S. records, although they're also adding some British Commonwealth nations. And you can go there, for example, and find the muster rolls and service rec- combined service records. Um, so once you know your Civil War ancestor, um, from the one side, you pop over to Fold 3, and uh, you can find all kinds of more information, pension records. It's funny, for the Civil War... Fold 3 is actually a little bit better for Confederate in terms of service. They just started with those, I guess. Of course, if you're looking up pension records, you're going to have better luck with uh, your your union folks because the federal government paid them pensions, and those are also states. Right, right. So, again, that first one was Civil War Soldiers and Sailors System. I really like that site. I have had some great success over there. And it's so easy to use, too. It's just real quick and uh, you know, no nonsense. Um, and but then there's a lot of other sort of bells and whistles you can discover there. And then yeah, the other one is, is just Fold Three. Fold Three dot com. Right. Okay, great. Now if we think of the National Archives that make your list. Yeah, absolutely, and of course, there's a lot of things at the National Archives, which is just archives.gov. But 
it seems to be particularly strong on military records. Um, you know, it's got historic photos and maps. A lot of people don't realize it's got World War II enlistment files. So I could find my dad's World War II, you know, basically his draft record, since he didn't volunteer, he got drafted. And uh, it's not, those aren't packed with information, but sometimes that may be the only place where you'll find, you know, the person's birth date or where they were at the time and so forth. And, of course, you can also go to the National Archives site to find things that are not digitized, you know, that you have to order. And that's right. where you can – it's so easy to order veterans' records from there. It's all – it's online, you know, and uh, just boom, a few clicks, and, you know, pretty soon you'll be looking at the uh, copies of the of the records. Yeah, and that's a great example of even though certainly not all records are online, so much you know we start our research there. We right. can do so much legwork, <laughs> yeah. and then maybe even be able just to order something rather than having to um, make a trip in person. Exactly. Uh, and what other any other ones that really caught your fancy well, that made the list this it, year? It's always worth pointing out. I think that the daughters of the American Revolution, even if you don't have a patriot ancestor as they define it, you might find it useful because. They have the Patriot ancestors, basically people who fought in the revolution or otherwise, you know, were, were a part of it, but also DAR members who use those ancestors to qualify for membership. But they also have submitted files on all the descendants in between. So you might have an ancestor who that you share with the DAR. And because they have some standards for how you have to prove and document, it's not quite like other you know, pedigree files are always warning about that, you know, you can't really depend on them. But these actually have, right. they've had to submit some documentation. Um, and so there are, you know, literally millions, again, uh, of records here. It's, and you can go back and forth between the patriots, you know, and then the, all the various ancestors sort of skipping back and forth through time. So even if you don't have somebody who actually fought in the revolution, you might have some, somehow the, your family tree you know, locks into that, and suddenly you have a whole big bunch of information. Yeah, absolutely. Great suggestion. Well, there's a whole slew of wonderful websites to to get started with. Of course, we'll have links in the show notes to the ones that David mentioned, and I know there are a couple of more, plus lots more in the entire 101 list that will certainly boost your research. Hey, thank you so much for for, uh, sharing this with us on our military episodes. Thanks. In this Family Tree University Crash Course segment, I've invited author and instructor Nancy Hendrickson back to the show to give us a bit of a crash course on military records. These are based on her on-demand video webinar. It's called How to Find Ancestor Military Records. Welcome back, Nancy. Hey, thank you so much. I always love being here. Well, when we discover that an ancestor has served in the military, of course, our first question is, particularly if we're kind of new to military records, is, what kind of records am I looking for? So what do you tell your students? You know, that is a great question. And one thing I think people probably do realize is the more recent the conflict, the more difficult it is to get records just because of privacy issues. So, you know, finding things for, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, even going back to Vietnam and Korea there are not a lot of publicly available records at this point in time. So when I talk about military records, I usually go back as to the beginning of the person's stay in America, 
But, you know, I'm going to talk forwards, backwards today. Instead. Oh, good. <laughs> okay, so some of the very best 20th century records people should look for is if their family was here during the period of World War One, because there are fantastic draft registration cards. And you don't even have to have served in the military to have filled out a draft registration card. And I think people don't realize that. They think if their, you know, their grandfather, great-grandfather had to have actually been a World War One soldier to find anything, and that's really not true. That's a great point. And, and I've noticed as well that you don't even have to be draft age to have that's draft cards. That's so tell us about that, because that really does cover a lot of people. Well, you know, that World War One draft registration cards, of all the military records that I've searched over time, and, you know, I'll go back to the very beginning of America's history, World War One draft registration cards can have the most detailed information of any military records I've ever seen because not only do they give you a physical description of the person, which you, you can also find in Civil War records, but they tell you where they worked, the kind of work they did, if they're married, how many dependents they have or who their dependents are, because in some cases that I've seen it may just say parents or mother, wife and two children, whatever the number of dependents, it will also tell if the person had a physical disability of any kind, and you'll also get their signature. And if they were not born in the United States, not only does it typically tell the country, it tells the town they were born in. So this is just an amazing, as, as you know as a genealogist, this is a treasure trove for genealogists. Oh. Absolutely. Boy, the name of that village is just priceless when it comes to jumping the pond. It is. I did some research for a gentleman in San Diego here who is first generation parents were from Greece. And his I found his his dad's draft registration card. And, you know, it had that town in Greece where he came from. And it it noted that he was supporting the mother and father who were still in Greece. You know, that's so valuable. So mm-hmm. if I were just starting out, I would I would hit those registration cards first. Now, you can get those on Ancestry, but you can also find those on the FamilySearch.org site, and those will be free. So that's where I would start. Going backwards, I would start looking for Civil War records. And there are so many types of Civil War records, pensions, widow's pensions, compiled service records. And those compiled service records are pretty interesting because it's basically kind of a month-by-month account of if you were present or if you weren't present. And that's where you'll find things like the person might have been sick and in the hospital or they had been wounded and sent home for two months. Those little uh, cards will tell you month by month, kind of where that person was at any given time. And the thing that people, when they're searching for Civil War records, need to understand, too, is the U.S. had a tremendous amount of volunteers during the Civil War. There were also U.S. regular Army people, and there were state militia people. So you kind of have three different avenues of research depending on where to go. And in terms of the volunteers, 
the state of Illinois, I think they were the fourth largest number of volunteers behind New York, Pennsylvania, I think Ohio. And so there are a lot of online free databases of Illinois volunteers that I know for sure that are on the state of Illinois sites as well as on Ancestry. And this will tell you when the person signed up, the name of the regiment, their rank going in, and their rank at discharge. You can also find those at the Civil War Soldiers and Sailors database, which is also free. So, you know, people might say, so what? So what if I find out he was in the whatever, 7th Illinois? Once you have a regiment and you're just starting this kind of research, once you have a regiment, it's really easy to go to Google and look up the history of that regiment and you'll see every battle on every date that they ever fought in. And I know you and I are both huge users of Google Maps and Google Earth. So I will sit down sometimes and I'll pull out Google Maps and I will trace where that regiment went over the course of the person's service in in that particular regiment just to get a sense of here are these farm boys who probably never left their local town and here's this, you know, 2,000-mile journey they took. And then, because I am such a map geek, Mm -hmm. I will also go... And I hope this isn't getting too deep for what you the question you ask me. But for major battles in the Civil War, you can go to Google and find what's called an order of battle. And it will tell you where any regiment was on the battlefield. Okay? Wow. So I can go to like Antietam or Shiloh, find out where my ancestor, his regiment was, Then I go to Google Earth and fly over, and I can actually see where on that battlefield they stood. And see, that's kind of information I love finding, because just finding that record is great, but knowing kind of what they experienced for me is even better. Exactly. It brings it to life. Absolutely. I know in Google Earth, you can turn on the uh, Rumsey Historical Map. That's right. And then you have, yes, this is where it looks today, but then you actually do go back to that Civil War era map and see. It's, it's, it's wonderful. And I think that's what's so terrific about this class is that it doesn't just bring students to the records, but it's going to unleash a whole new area of really getting to know their lives. And uh, that's pretty exciting. Absolutely. And in terms of the Civil War, too, there are a wonderful information in both pension files and widow's pensions. So you can find out uh, a person's disability. And in terms of a widow's pension, you'll very likely find the name of the widow and the name of the children. Uh, So lots of information hidden in those types of files. And going back further, so I'll go back to the Revolutionary War. I hate skipping the War of 1812 because it often gets short shrift And I've written several articles about the War of 1812. Uh, But, you know, if your ancestor was uh, too young for the Revolution and too old for the Civil War, go looking for the War of 1812 records. And I know Fold3.com has free War of 1812 um, index records. Mm -hmm. 
pension files and the familysearch.org also has pension application files for the War of 1812. So there's there's a lot of information out there. So if you can't find them in the Revolution of the Civil War, go go to the War of 1812 and start looking for pension files. Oh, perfect. And again, if you want to go even further into it, there is this on-demand video class, How to Find Your Ancestor Military Records. And Nancy really will take you into the pensions, the county histories, all the way back to the Revolutionary War. And that just leads to a lot of valuable insight and kind of hidden resources to further your research. Well, it really does. If we have time, I would just say one more thing about the Revolution. And, Absolutely. And the types of records... To look for, you know, Revolutionary War service, the, the, what we call the Army, that thing did not exist at the beginning of the Revolution. You were looking at a lot of state militias, and people may have served a couple months, gone home, come back. It was a pretty fluid situation. So finding those state records are a little more difficult, but what you can find are uh, what's called bounty land warrants. And people were promised land either as an incentive to sign up or as payment for their service. And, you know, they don't have a lot of information on them. But what I like about them is it will, depending on the amount of land they get, you'll be able to figure out their rank. And I do go over this in that webinar that depending on your rank, you got so many acres and Ancestry actually will show you the name and the number of acres, and it has an image of the actual warrant. One thing I like about this, too, is this bounty land was often in what was the Northwest Territory, which became Ohio. So let's say you have a Virginia soldier who, in 1803-1804, all of a sudden ends up in Ohio, it's really possible that they're there because that's where their bounty land was. Which is an indicator that they perhaps had military service. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Oh, perfect. Oh, you're always a wealth of information. Uh-huh. Thank you so you're much. Welcome. And this just fits perfect into this episode. Right. All right, Nancy. Thank you again. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks a lot. Well, we've come to the end of another great episode all about maximizing your military research and and the records that are out there. And we're going to head to the publisher's desk to see what Allison Dolan has for us. Hi, Allison. Hi, Lisa. So we've been really covering a lot of ground as far as doing military research. Do you have resources and, and ideas for us to kind of top us off? I do. I want to talk a little bit about the Family Tree Historical Maps book, Europe, specifically as it relates to World War I. So clearly, that was a big factor in changing the way the map of Europe was drawn, and this book is a great resource for unraveling that. Exactly. Oh, I can't think of a better time frame to discuss. And i got to tell everybody who's listening, this book is amazing. I wish I had pictures I could flash up on the audio so that you could see it. But that's such a critical thing, isn't it? It's the boundaries when they start changing. That changes everything about where we're looking for records, does it not? It really does. And, you know, this is actually not about military records 
exclusively. This is about every kind of record that you yeah. really be looking for um, in your genealogy research as you're tracing your ancestors back to the old country. It's a military incident that sort of precipitated everything, but you know it, it affects record keeping across the piece. So really difficult to understand as well. You've got pretty much everything from Germany over changed after World War One, And so understanding what territory belonged to who when is super important. And this map gives a great snapshot of that across time. So is it different maps on different pages? Does it fold out? What kind of, of book is this? So it's a really big book. It's <laughs> kind of a coffee table book size. And it has Europe as a whole. There's a section going from sort of different periods in time, so you can see how the borders evolved. Uh, then there are specific countries and regions, sections for that, so that you can see the changes more specifically in those areas, as well as the administrative divisions. That's pretty helpful. So you can tell if county boundaries or provincial boundaries change, too. So we know that with World War One and so many of the boundaries that changed, that's a key area. What time frame does the does the book kind of span? Well, the book actually starts in the 1700s and goes through the 1900s. And each country is a little bit different in the time frame, depending upon what dates were important in its history, as well as what maps were available. We did focus exclusively on English language maps in this book because... Most of the buying audience for this book are English speakers, and it's kind of hard enough to get your head around all of the jurisdictions without throwing in the additional wrench of, this is not in my language, I don't understand what this means. So that's why we made that decision. But if you looked at the Europe section, for example, where it's showing the entire continent, it starts um, in the 1700s, and then it moves forward throughout time, and we kind of picked things that were important. So there's an 1811 map that sort of corresponds with after Napoleon, and then you get a look at the 1820s, the 1830s, the 1840s, the 1850s, and the 1870s. Then things start to get interesting because Austria is expanding, Prussia is expanding. Mm-hmm. 1903, you kind of get that pre-World War One view where Germany has unified at this point, Italy has unified, Austria-Hungary is pretty much most of Eastern Europe and the rest of it is the Ottoman Empire. So then when you flip to 1921, it all looks totally different. No more Ottomans. There's Yugoslavia. There's Czechoslovakia. Romania and Bulgaria have become their own countries. What used to be, you know, a giant piece of territory that was Austria-Hungary, those are two tiny, tiny countries now. (laughs) And they're split. They're not together. And Poland is back on the map, which is important. And you've got the Baltic republics. And, you know, there's this spot in 1921. You know, you've got Germany, which is kind of how it looks today. But then there's a little spot right above Poland, the East Prussia, that belongs to Germany. So it's really nice to have this sort of, ability to flip through and look at the different time periods all in one place. Yeah, well, it it is to me, it's fascinating to me, because I have great grandparents that came from East Prussia in 1910. And it's not just about tracking them, but in me trying to pursue all the relatives who stayed behind. 
wow, they're in different countries now, you know, so that's so helpful. And I noticed when I was looking at the book in shopfamilytree.com that there's a bonus download. Tell us about that. Right. The bonus download is the administrative division. So there's actually one in the back of the book that kind of goes through some of the most important ones. This is basically telling you if a country uses counties or provinces and what the names of them are so that when you're looking at the map, you have that reference to say, oh, that's what that says. (laughs) Because sometimes on those historical maps, it's a little bit hard to tell. And then in certain cases, it will give you like I'm looking at Finland right now and there are regions of Finland. And then it gives you the Finnish, the Swedish and the capital of those different regions. So the bonus download is actually an expanded version of this appendix that's in the back. And that's Mm -hmm. really great because it includes additional time periods in some cases or more extensive things that didn't fit in the book. So if there were hundreds of counties and we couldn't fit them all in the book, in certain cases, those will show up in the bonus download. Oh, fantastic. Well, Check it out. It's called Family Tree Historical Maps Book, Europe, a country-by-country atlas of European history. Again, 1700s to 1900s. I noticed it's discounted in the store, which is a great price. And be sure and check out under the image on the product page, you'll see a Google preview. And um, there's nothing like really seeing what this book has to offer. Click the Google preview button and you'll see just some fabulous examples of these gorgeous, and they're really gorgeous maps, but so helpful to doing genealogy research. Sounds great. Thank you so much. A perfect item to uh, top off a really fun and interesting episode. Thanks, Allison. Thank you, Lisa. Talk to you next time. Thanks so much for joining me for this June 2016 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. It's the monthly show from America's number one genealogy magazine. Be sure to head to familytreemagazine.com slash podcast where you'll find the show notes for this June episode, which will include information and website links for everything that we covered. Thanks again for joining me today. I'm Lisa Louise Cook, and I invite you to visit me at my website, genealogygems.com. And there you can listen to my free podcast, the Genealogy Gems Podcast, which is also available free through iTunes, and we do have an app. Until next time, have fun climbing your family tree.